Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. So this is the final Sunday of our 13-part series through the book of Nehemiah. We've taken the entire summer to journey our way through Nehemiah. So if you are visiting for the first time, welcome. Uh, You will still, I believe, get something from this message, even though it is at the back end of our series through Nehemiah. Um, In case you are not familiar with the story, uh, Nehemiah is a, or was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he is granted permission by the king of Persia to return to Jerusalem um, as governor of Judah uh, with resources and with people in order to rebuild Jerusalem's city walls that are in ruins and to gather the people of God back that have now been scattered. Um, We mustn't make the mistake, though, of thinking that Nehemiah was given permission because of a decision by King Artaxerxes, who was king of Persia at the time. Nehemiah was called by God. Nehemiah acknowledged that the gracious hand of the Lord was upon him. So the story of Nehemiah essentially is the God of the impossible calling the most unlikely person to do incredible things, ultimately to restore the glory and the honor of the name of the Lord under the gracious hand of God. That's the story of Nehemiah. And the cool thing is, that's the story of church in the city. And that's my story, and that's your story. The things that we achieve for God are not because of decisions we make or things that we do in our own strength, but because God's gracious hand is upon us. God's intent then with Israel, and God's intent now through church in the city and through every church that exalts the name of Jesus, is simply this, and that is to create a community of God's people where His presence and glory dwells, so that we can be a blessing to the nations of the world, so that we can help to see people who are exiled from God, estranged in relationship with God, to be restored back into intimacy with Him and established as heirs of His kingdom. That's what God is doing in the world today. That's what God has been doing since the beginning of time. And we have the privilege of being part of that. And so in the light of all that God is doing at Church in the City, and Matt mentioned our journey towards 4216 West Belmont, which has started and there will be more news coming in the, in the weeks to come. And we are at each Sunday one step closer to an air-conditioned room, which is Worth, worth being honoring God for. But our journey towards 4216 West Belmont and the unpacking of our vision framework recently, which is centered around that statement, all of Jesus for everyone, and the reality of, of with those changes will probably come a name change as well. I say all of that to say the purpose with all of those things is, is this. It's because of our deepest desire and our deepest longing to see people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so, so change, or, or, or can I use this word, a refocusing is inevitable. Change or a refocusing of our, of our purpose and our time and our effort and our energy is unavoidable. My father, for most of the first eight years of my life, had a, an incredible mustache that Tom Selleck would have been proud of. I mean, it was... It was really, really impressive. And uh, that's how I knew my dad. From the moment I came, uh, was, was born onto this planet, until about eight, my dad had this really impressive mustache. And then one morning, he woke up early while I was still sleeping, and for whatever reason, he decided to shave his mustache off. And I woke up and saw him, and I was shocked. I was, 
I was horrified. I was so thrown by the change that I ended up burst, I burst into tears, and I was just so unsettled by this. But a couple of hours later, I soon began to realize that it was still my dad. It was still him. Even though he looked a little different, it was still my father. We've been through and are in the midst of an incredible season of change. Since October last year, when, when God spoke a very clear prophetic word over this church, the, the, the prophetic word was, or the prophetic picture was one of a construction site. And the only thing that had been built on this construction site was the foundations. And in this prophetic picture, God is giving us a brick. And with it, the words, today we begin to build above ground. Since that moment, we have gone through some significant change. And to the child and every single one of us, it probably thinks like, Dad, it feels like Dad not only has shaved his mustache off, but shaved his entire beard off. But I want to say we are still who we are. We are still about the same things, passionate for the same things. No matter what we call ourselves, no matter how we define our vision framework, no matter where we end up meeting, no matter what logo we put on our website, we are still who we are. We are still passionate and will always be passionate about the person of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Our greatest longing and desire is always and will always be to see the lost come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and injustice made, made right in our city. We still believe powerfully that, that by the Holy Spirit, we get to abide in Jesus. And through the Holy Spirit, God moves and ministers supernaturally in our hearts and lives. And we are still passionate about the local church, that God has called us to be part of a body, that, and, and we are called to guard the unity of the faith. So in one sense, a lot has changed. And in another sense, nothing's changed at all. So that's why this series for me has been so timely and so relevant for Church in the City. But it's also been timely and relevant for each one of you, I trust, because the story of Nehemiah, as we've been learning over these last 12 weeks, the story of Nehemiah is a blueprint for how God forms and fashions and develops personal vision, godly personal vision in each of our hearts. And we've learned very importantly that it starts with a burden or a broken heart. If we turn back to Nehemiah 1, which we won't do, but if you, if you were to turn back to Nehemiah 1, you would read of, of how Nehemiah's heart is broken because he gets to hear of the state of Jerusalem and the, and the state of God's people. His, his heart is broken because of the glory of God and, and his name is at stake. And we've been asking this question repeatedly every single week. And if you haven't yet answered it, I want to say this is the time to answer that question. And it's this, what burdens your heart? What breaks your heart? What is it about the status quo in the light of, of how you see God's prophetic plan and purpose? What is it about the status quo that burdens or breaks your heart? God has a, has a plan for us as a church, but God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And as I said on that video, that's what we're going to be going after at the Leadership Summit. So maybe I'm biased some might even say a bit delusional, but I believe church in this city is at a sweet, sweet, sweet place. I'm excited with all that God is doing. I'm full of faith. I, I look around me with incredible thankfulness and humility for all that God has done. And, and I look down the corridor of time and I, and I can't wait. I, I'm full of faith and expectation for all that God promises to do in our midst. Which is why I, I think Nehemiah 12 and 13 are, is, is such a timely passage that we're going to unpack today. 
Nehemiah 12 and Nehemiah 13 tells us, in a, in a way, how to handle change and what is important in a season of change. We're going to learn an exhortation from Nehemiah 12, and we're going to look at four things that Nehemiah 13 cautions us about when it comes to transition and when it comes to change. So let's jump right in. The exhortation from Nehemiah 12 is simply this. Because God is unchanging, despite the changes around us, our worship should always reflect a wholehearted passion and zeal for Him. Let me read that again. Because God is unchanging, despite the changes around us, our worship should always reflect a wholehearted passion and zeal for Him. That's the exhortation from Nehemiah 12. We're going to look at a few verses in a few moments. I heard this week of a a very interesting exchange that took place between a pastor and a visitor to his church or to the church that he was leading. And this pastor was recounting the, the conversation that he had with this visitor out in the lobby after the meeting. And he goes up to this visitor and he says to the visitor, how did you enjoy your time with us? And rather interestingly, the visitor replies, well, to be honest, it was a bit, a bit like a cult. Raising hands, you know, eyes closed, hyped emotions. It really felt like a bit of a cult to me. So which the pastor replied, he goes, but the raised hands and the, and the loud singing and the emotions is a reflection of our passion for God. And he, and he goes on to say, which I think is just so clever, he, say, he goes on to say, you surely wouldn't call football fans cultish. They go to a football game and they raise their hands and they raise their voices and they, they are kind of hyped emotions, but they're not cultish. And so the visitor replies to the pastor, yeah, but at least the football fans can see the football game, which I think is a very clever answer. To which the pastor, I mean, he blows my mind the way, that, the way that he handled this. To which the pastor says this, yes, that might be so. But let's for, a, let's for a moment imagine that what we're singing about is actually true. Let's for a moment imagine that the God of the universe is actually present in the room. And let's for a moment believe that Jesus has in fact defeated sin, sickness, and death. Wouldn't it be odd if as a church we gathered and said, I am so excited that God is here. I am so thrilled for all that God has done for us. The point that the pastor was making is simply this. If the things that we sing about, the songs that we've sung this morning, if those songs are true, if the truths there are real, and we do believe that Jesus is alive, and the Holy Spirit is moving, and the God of the universe is present, and He's done all the things that He has done, then surely our worship should reflect wholehearted, passionate zeal, irrespective of the changing circumstances around us. Now, can I just say for a moment, we're talking about worship. And right there, when I mention that word, I know there are a gazillion opinions and perspectives on what worship should be. David Phelps and I yesterday were talking at a barbecue about the fact that, for some reason, people have great opinions about church and about education. When it comes to their kids, they have a thousand opinions about how school classrooms should be run. And let's be honest, we all have opinions about how churches should be run. But worship in particular is one area in the church where people have tons of opinions. I've written a few things down. The worship should be louder. It should be softer. It should be faster. It should be slower. We should sing new songs. I love the old songs. Songs need to be more celebratory. Songs need to be more introspective. Our worship set should be more structured. It needs to be more spontaneous. 
It's too long. It's not long enough. And on and on. Every single one of us have opinions about worship. Am I right, Aiden? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the point I'm speaking about this morning is not a particular worship style. The thing I'm trying to drive home is the attitude of our hearts. And I trust that the attitude of our hearts is one of joy and one of desperation and one of longing to experience the very presence and the goodness of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Before we look at the text in Nehemiah, because what Nehemiah is doing is simply building off what what the people of God have done for centuries, I want to just show you very quickly that the people of God have always been a worshiping people. The people of God have always been a people who, who, who sacrificially and, and, and with exuberance worship the Lord. In Genesis 12, Abraham, within moments of hearing God call him to leave his country and to go to the land that he will show him, Abraham immediately builds an altar of sacrifice to worship the Lord. And if there's one thing we can say about Abraham, in addition to the fact that he made many mistakes, it was that he worshiped God wholeheartedly. At the same time in history, at another part of the world, Job is facing the most unspeakable and unbearable trials and difficulties. He's lost absolutely everything, including his family, except his wife. And even his wife is saying to him, disown God, because God has abandoned you. And Job replies with these words, may the name of the Lord be praised. I don't perceive to understand why we go through hard and difficult times this side of eternity. I don't perceive to understand it. And, but the one thing I do know is this, is that during those difficult times, worship is often the one thing that enables us to cling to God in the midst of hardship and difficulty. I remember when we as a family, this, earlier this year, when Hannah had her brain bleed, we're going through an, an unspeakably difficult time. And if I can be honest and vulnerable for a moment, it was a time when I honestly did not know what to pray. And at times when I read the word, it felt like these were simply just words on a page. But the one thing that got us through and the one thing that got me through was worship. Just hearing the, and listening and, and joining in, singing those truths, declaring the greatness and the goodness of God. And even in terms of, if you don't mind me sharing, Hannah, even in terms of Hannah's kind of heart recovery, as opposed to her physical recovery, the, her, her, her hardness of heart that had to be kind of softened in the presence of the Lord. Every day, my routine while she was in hospital was to wake up early, catch the bus, and we'd go and have a devotional together, and then we'd watch movies for the, for the morning until her rehab would start. But none of that actually softened her heart. It was when she got back into the presence of the Lord in worship that her heart began to soften. And so I say all that to say, when we go through tough times, friends, cling to God through worship. Abraham, Job, Moses. Moses leads the people of Israel across the Red Sea. And on the other side of the Red Sea in Exodus 15, he he leads the nation of Israel in song. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. David is an incredible example of one who worships God primarily, uh, most amazingly, 2 Samuel chapter 6. The nation of Israel lead the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God dwells, back to Jerusalem. And there is David stripped to his undergarments, dancing before the Lord. And his wife judges him and says, oh my goodness, how, I, how, how dignified you were in front of the, the nation of Israel. And David replies, it was before the Lord that I danced, 
I'll become even more undignified than this. Essentially, what he's saying is, I stood next to the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, and I wasn't struck down. That is reason to celebrate, and that is reason to worship. The book of Psalms are full of of worship song after worship song. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul longs, even yearns for your presence. And on and on, Psalms goes. Even in exile. Now, if you understand the history of Israel, the history of uh, Israel was eventually split into two because of a poor decision of one of Solomon's sons. And both the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel were eventually exiled. And even in the midst of exile, the people of God still believed that God was going to deliver them. They were still a worshiping people. Isaiah writes, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on eagles' wings. And Psalm says this, by the rivers of Babylon, Babylon was one of the nations that had taken Israel into into exile. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. And that wasn't a Boney M song for those who are older than 40 will probably know that they made that song famous and right there I've given my age away. But that actually was David who was, uh, that was actually the people of Israel who were lamenting and crying out to God. I don't want to get off track and speak about lament, but I will say this, lament is one part of, of, of our relationship with the Lord that I think has gone missing in the modern church today. There needs to be an, 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 an ability and, a, a, and space given for us to, to, to lament, for us to grieve, biblically grieve, when we face hardships and difficulties. But I will say this about lament. It is always rooted in the hope that God will ultimately save. Jeremiah writes this book, Lamentations, which is his heart grieving out to the Lord, saying, will you save us? But in the midst of lamentations, he writes this. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, Israel was convinced that God would rescue them, and He did. And under Nehemiah, they returned back to Jerusalem, and the wall was rebuilt, and injustice was, was, was overcome, and opposition was held back. And the word was restored. But there was one thing that was still missing from the, from the community of faith. And that was this important thing of worship. And so let's read Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 27. It says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they, where they lived. The Levites were the priestly tribe in, uh, in Israel. The Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Essentially, Nehemiah was getting the band back together. He was restoring worship back to the nation of Israel. And verses 28 to 42 describe this incredible uh, gathering of two massive choirs. Nehemiah gathers two choirs and with trumpet players and people following these two choirs. And he sends one choir to walk along the top of the wall in a southerly direction and one choir to walk along the top of the wall in a northerly direction. And they were singing songs of adoration and praise to the Lord. And then let's look at verse 43. And it says, On that day, the people of God, they offered great sacrifices. 
me just pause there for a moment and remind us that in Old Testament times when people worshipped, they would bring sacrifices, it would be at incredible personal cost. When it says they brought sacrifices, it meant they brought physical animals to sacrifice before the Lord as an act of worship. And most people in Israel, that was their form of living. So it cost them dearly to bring the best lamb or the best cow or whatever and to sacrifice it before the Lord. Thank goodness we are in the New Testament. Thank goodness Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice who has wiped away all need for animal sacrifice. But can I say this, friends? Jesus has not removed the importance of costly worship. Worship that costs us something. Worship that is indeed a sacrifice. As Hebrews chapter 13 says, through Jesus, let us continue to offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that openly confess his name. So verse 43 says, on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Many of us have gone, many of us are going through incredibly difficult times. But can I say, because God has given us Jesus, his own son, we have reason to rejoice. Because in Jesus, God has always given us great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. This was a community thing. And then it ends off and it says, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I love that line. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Friends, every time we gather on a Sunday morning and we spend, you know, 25, 35, as it was today, probably 45 minutes worshiping God, I trust and I pray, I pray this every Sunday, I pray that the the sound, not so much the physical sound, but the sound in the heavenlies would be lifted up over this building and over our city and that the sound of rejoicing would be heard far away. Matt mentioned the reality of the opposition that we face, a a different lifestyle and a different culture right across the street. And I trust as we worship, that sound of rejoicing would be heard far away. But it's not just the sound that we, we bring when we sing. It's the lives that we live from Monday through Saturday. As they reflect an act of worship, I trust and pray that that would be a sound of rejoicing that would be heard far away that people would look at us and say, there is something about you because of the way you worship your God. We look to Nehemiah and to Israel to teach us something about worship. We sing the songs that, that Moses and David sing even today. But you know that there is something, or, or should I say there is someone that, that Abraham and Moses and David and Nehemiah didn't know. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Every one of the songs that we read about and every one of of, of the examples that we read about in worship in the Old Testament points towards and longs for the day that Jesus would come as Lord and Savior. Do you know that we can sing songs that they could not sing in the Old Testament? The greatest day in history. Death is beaten. You have rescued me. Sing Sing it loud. Sing it aloud. Jesus is alive or something like that. I know we were going to sing Cornerstone this morning. Christ alone, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Moses couldn't sing that song, friends. David couldn't sing that song. And as much as we learn from them, we must remember that because of Jesus, because of the fact that we can worship in spirit and in truth, our worship needs to be exuberant despite the changing circumstances around us. 
And so my application in this point alone is very simple. I want to challenge every one of us to come prepared before you leave home on a Sunday morning to worship. You know, there is absolutely no biblical precedent for worshiping when we feel like it. But in all reality, that's how most of us, including me at times, worship. We start to worship when we feel like it. We start to worship once the music gets us going. We start to worship once we've had a cup of coffee and and we're starting to wake up a little bit. But there's no biblical precedent for that. The biblical precedent for worship is to make the choice to worship because God is consistent. And very quickly, our bodies begin to catch up with the reality of what what we're commanding our bodies to do. And so that's my challenge to us. Take five minutes before you leave home on a Sunday morning and say, God, would you help me to worship you in a manner that brings you glory and and ministers to other people? That's the exhortation from Nehemiah chapter 12. And now we need to turn to Nehemiah chapter 13 in the last kind of 10 minutes or so. Nehemiah 13 is almost the chapter that shouldn't have been added. Things were absolutely peachy right up until the end of Nehemiah chapter 12. And then King Artaxerxes calls Nehemiah back, and Nehemiah leaves to return back to Persia, and things things go downhill pretty much in Nehemiah chapter 13, unfortunately. Israel, in the season of change, starts to drift from the things that Nehemiah had installed. And when Nehemiah returns back to Jerusalem, he notices four things in particular that have gone wrong. And I think there are four very helpful cautions for us in a season of change and in a season of transition that we need to be aware of. Now, because of time, I'm not going to have the opportunity to go through each of these in great detail. Each one is a sermon on their own. But I want you, please, not to think, because I'm only taking 10 minutes on these, that they are unimportant. These are very important things to consider when it comes to a season of change. Number one, and the first one is found in Nehemiah 13, verse 4 through 9. Nehemiah 13, verse 4 through 9. The first caution is this. In a season of change, if we're not careful, we tend to become less vigilant about compromise. Or said in another way, we become less serious about Christ-likeness. Essentially, what I'm saying there is because things are unsettled around us, we can very easily get distracted. And what happened in the book of Nehemiah is while Nehemiah was away, one of the priests who was in charge of the temple had made a room, set aside a room for Tobiah to, to, to basically take up shop, to, to, to establish himself in, in the temple. Now you might think, who is Tobiah? Tobiah was the very guy in Nehemiah 4 and 6 who had openly opposed Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple. And he was being allowed to come into the temple to set up house. Most of our struggles with sin, in particular, come as a consequence of compromising on things we initially deem inconsequential. In other words, in our hearts, we make room for Tobiah to take up shop. No one wakes up in the morning and decides that day to cheat on their taxes or to cheat on their spouse. No one wakes up in a, one morning and decides to get hooked on porn or to get hooked on drugs. But those radical issues of sin and and struggle come at the end of a journey of little, seemingly inconsequential compromises and blurred lines. 
When we don't think this little compromise is going to make that much difference, or this little attitude is going to make much difference, or holding on to this bit of unforgiveness is going to make that much difference. But the moment we start to segment our lives, friends, it eventually bleeds into the rest of our lives, and it can bring us down. I've used this illustration many times before, but when we first moved into our apartment or condo, we've got this, uh, this HVAC room, and during our first winter, for some reason, the H, there's, a, there's an exhaust pipe which goes right down to the sump pump at the bottom. And for some reason, on really cold days, we would get this, this smell of, of stuff that sump pumps remove, basically. Yeah, and, uh, bathroom smells would come up from the bottom and would fill our HVAC closet. I mean, it was awful and disgusting. But as soon as we closed the closet door, we would think, okay, it's great. It's contained within the closet door. But then the HVAC would come on, and very quickly that smell would begin to permeate throughout the entire house. And it struck me in that moment, that's so often what we do with compromise. We compromise in this little area, or we fudge this little area, and we think it's segmented off, and it's not going to impact the rest of us. But very soon, that starts to impact every single area of our lives. And friends, can I just say, when it comes to compromise, chief of all of this is the attitude of saying, that's never going to happen to me. That's never going to happen to me. I'm never going to fall morally, or I'm never going to get hooked on this or hooked on that. I'm never going to cheat. And, and it, it happens to the best of God's people. We need to be on God. In fact, when we project strength, we actually harden our hearts to the grace of God. But when we, are weak, when we acknowledge our weakness and we are vulnerable about our weakness, it actually invites the grace of God to move into our hearts. Joshua says this to the nation of Israel as they're about to cross into the promised land. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow God will do amazing things among you. We cannot hope for God to do amazing things among us tomorrow unless we are prepared to consecrate ourselves today. In the season of change, let's not be less vigilant about compromise. The second thing, very quickly, it's found in verses 10 through 14, Nehemiah 10 through 14. In a season of change, if we're not careful, we tend to become indifferent towards godly authority. We tend to become indifferent towards godly authority. Because things are unclear, I want to go alone. Because things are unclear, I want to go it alone. And essentially, while Nehemiah was away, the Levites and the priests had been sidelined from their responsibility. I think every one of us would agree that the, that the spirit of the day is one of suspicion of those in authority. And as a nation, we, we, we almost pride ourselves on, on, on rebellion against those who are in power or those who have authority. It's, it's, it's the very fabric of our nation. And unredeemed, we are people who love to, to be independent. And, and the culture is wooing us towards greater independence. Don't tell me what to do. I've got this covered. God has given us very clearly three areas of authority that are absolutely essential in order for us to flourish. He's given us His Word. He's given us the Spirit of God. And He's given us a church community led by godly leaders who are there to, to help bring us into maturity as we willingly submit to their authority. Now, the first two, I think most of us get. Yes, I agree. We are in submission to the Word of God, and we're in submission to the Holy Spirit. Although at times, let's be honest, when our opinion counters the Word of God, sometimes this does come secondary. 
But most of the time, we, we are willing to surrender to the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit. But godly leaders, I'm called to submit and, and submit myself to those in the church who are in authority over me. That sounds like very heavy-handed language. But I want to read a text from Hebrews 13, verse 17. And can I just say, this sounds awfully self-serving. But it's not. It's in the Word of God. And I need to preach it. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Let me tell you, that's very sobering and quite terrifying, actually, to read. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. We're a kingdom of priests who are called to advance the kingdom of God. But there is safety and an authority that is released when we willingly invite insight and perspective from the Word of God, from the Holy Spirit, and from godly leaders that that God has placed over the local church. Thirdly, we nearly finished. Thirdly, this is found in verse 15 through 22. In a season of change, if we're not careful, we tend to drift towards doing over being. If we're not careful, we tend to drift towards doing over being. In other words, because things aren't happening, I'm going to take charge. While Nehemiah was away, the Israelites began to forget the importance of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is very difficult to understand in the modern-day context, but essentially, the Sabbath was given to God's people to remind them of where their identity lay. And it didn't come from what they achieved. And it didn't come from what they did. It came from who they were. They were the people of God, redeemed by the Lord. And friends, for those of us here who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we live in the Sabbath rest of God because of what Jesus has done, which means our worth and value and identity doesn't come from the things we achieve for God. It comes from knowing we are found in Him and Him in us. There are so many things we want to achieve for God. There is the gospel to preach. There are churches to plant. There is the sick to pray for. There is injustice to fight against and so many other things. But what God is saying to us in a season of change is don't get distracted by doing in your own strength. The Sabbath, the truth of the Sabbath is saying to us, stop, stop and find your rest in God. Sometimes some of us are so consumed about cleaning ourselves up for God, about trying to become the people God has called us to become. And yes, there is a preferred future for every one of us, but God doesn't love you on the basis of your preferred future. God loves you now. Be free in that. Don't live hoping that one day you will be, you will have read the Bible enough, you will have prayed enough, you will have healed enough people or whatever for God to love you. God loves you now, and that's what this truth is saying. And in a season of uncertainty and change, we can so easily give ourselves to activity rather than resting in the reality of who we are in God. And then lastly, and I'm going to end with this, the fourth thing that we tend to do in the season of change is found in verse 23 through 31. In a season of change, if we're not careful, we tend to lose our first love. In other words, because things are uncertain, other things become more important. While Nehemiah was away, the Israelites began to marry into other cultures, and they began to lose 
the intimacy that they had with, with, with God, with their Lord. We can never allow good things, even the good things that God has given us. We can never allow those things to become ultimate things. And I've said this many times from this pulpit, because, because good things becoming ultimate things will ultimately destroy us. I don't know who, who uh, said this, but it gets me every time. When I hear someone has brought, sorry, let me say it again. When I hear someone has bought their dream house, I'm really sad that their dream was as small as a house. That gets me every time. And I pray. Honestly, I am so excited about moving into our new space. I am, I am so excited. I think it is going to be, and it's not just the air conditioning, trust me. It is way more than that. I, I think it is going to be such a significant thing for church in the city. But 4216 West Belmont is not our dream. It's not our dream. And the testimonies that we have are not our ultimate dream. And the ministries God is calling us to lead is not our ultimate dream. Our ultimate dream is seeing the entire city and nation come under the goodness and grace and mercy and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our ultimate passion is and will always be Jesus Christ. And in the season of change, friends, we cannot allow ourselves to lose our first love. So I've given us an exhortation, and I've given us four cautions to be aware of in this season of change. I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind just standing for a moment, and we're going to just land this time in a time of prayer. If you feel comfortable to just open your, your hands in a posture of receiving, if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes just for a moment, just want to invite the Holy Spirit to, to minister into our hearts this morning. I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to, to move among us. Holy Spirit, would you, would you do exactly that? You have just been so gracious to us this morning. You've touched our hearts. You've moved in our lives. You've ministered the grace of Jesus to us. And as we just reflect on this morning's message, we just ask in, in Jesus' name that you would continue to just touch our hearts. Soften our hearts. Just as we are standing in this point, place of just receiving and listening uh, with our hearts to, to what the Lord might be saying to us, perhaps you might be here today and, and maybe your worship has grown a little comfortable. Perhaps your worship has, well, perhaps your worship doesn't reflect the reality of all that God has done. And this is not a challenge from me. And this is not a, a, an, an invitation to be necessarily more outwardly expressive. I'm just going to ask and trust that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction, not condemnation, but conviction, if changes need to be made in Jesus' name. Perhaps you're here today and in this season of change and transition, you have allowed yourselves to compromise on things that might seem insignificant. And that could mean different things for different people. But perhaps God is highlighting an area of compromise that you've made in your heart. The good news is, the Bible says, His mercies are new every morning. Just invite the Holy Spirit to minister the mercy of Jesus if you've allowed compromise to creep into your heart. Perhaps you've become indifferent to godly authority. Perhaps you've become hardened to the Word of God. 
Perhaps you've become hardened to, to leaders in the church that you know God has placed over you, but you're resistant to receive their counsel or their perspective. Again, this is not between you and me. This is between you and God. Just surrender that, that, that to the Lord this morning. Perhaps you've given yourself to doing over being. Perhaps you find a greater sense of comfort in busyness rather than just being in the presence of God. If that's you, just respond. And then lastly, maybe, maybe if, you're, if you're honest, your first love is not Jesus. Maybe your first love has grown, quiet, grown cold. God is not here to condemn. God is not here to be heavy-handed. God is here simply to woo you back into an intimate relationship again with Him. So however God is challenging you, however God is speaking to you this morning, just take these next 30 seconds, and then I'm going to hand over to Matt. Just take these next 30 seconds just to surrender your heart to Jesus and to say, Lord, would you forgive me for this compromise? Would you burn again with your love in my heart? Would you give me a love and a passion for worship and the word? Would you remind me that what is important is not what I do, but who I am in you? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Move among us this morning, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City. All of Jesus for everyone.